Welcome to episode 34 of the Media Sport podcast series. My name's Brett Hutchins, the host of the series, and I'm from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. This semi-regular series is taking a new direction for this episode in that it's presenting the contents of a panel presentation that occurred at the ICA 2020 conference on the Gold Coast in Australia. ICA is standing for the International Communication Association and the conference itself was held virtually because of the disruptions caused by COVID-19 to travel around the planet and of course the movement of people. The silver lining to this disruption is we get the opportunity to share our presentation or the panel presentation with a much wider audience that would have occurred just if we'd been presenting at the conference. Now the panel itself is titled Sport, Nation, Region, Sport and Cultural Citizenship in Oceania and it examines cultural citizenship and patterns of social inclusion and exclusion throughout Australia, New Zealand and the whole region of Oceania. The papers themselves go through a range of topics and I really hope you stay on to listen to all of them. For those of you who wish to access the visual dimensions and in particular the slides that travel with these presentations, I'll place a link to YouTube where the video can be accessed and I encourage you to do so. But for the moment I ask you to sit back and enjoy. Please persevere through some, through a few audio issues that happened just at the very beginning of the presentation and enjoy. The members of this panel acknowledge and pay respects to the Gumbah people of the Gold Coast and all their descendants, both past and present. We also acknowledge the many Aboriginal people from other regions, as well as Torres Strait and South Sea Islander people who now live in the local area and have made an important contribution to the community. Oh, thanks everyone for um, for coming and for um, Brett for having the idea. Um, we thought it was important because uh, that this was a rare visit of uh, the International Communication Association to this region, and um, it occurred to us that um, a conference is, in some ways, a no space. Like there's the there's the surrounding. Uh, part of the, uh, the venue, the environs. Um, but in, in a way you can feel that you're, uh, you can go to a conference and not really engage with the part of the world that you're in. And we thought it was important therefore for us to mark that this event, ironically now a virtual placeless event, um, would, uh, that we, we would um, make a kind of statement here about the work, some of the work that's going on uh, in our region, uh, which we think is important and which connects with um, with other people uh, in our field around the world. So I'm really pleased that uh, in adversity we managed to um, pull it together. Uh, and one of the advantages I, I, I say that we're we're sort of placeless, but we are in um, uh, relatively well synchronized time zones as opposed um, to another ICA. Uh, panel which uh, some of us are involved in tomorrow which uh, which stretches from the early morning on one part of the globe um, to the late evening in the uh, other part of the globe where uh, we're involved so so thank you very much and um, for coming and I hope that whoever's watching will get something out of this apart from the participants. Yeah.
And look, I just, thanks, David. I, I just wanted to add to that that um, I actually want to read from the original panel proposed, which I think is useful. It is, you know, obviously disappointing that we all can't come together, uh, you know, face to face. But I don't think in, in any way sort of delegitimates the, the purpose of what we're doing here as a group. And it really is to pay respect to the long history of sport communication and media research in the Oceania region. Um, and, you know, without wishing to be sort of overly parochial, you know, there is a very long history and the sorts of things that are coming out of even Oceania reflects the sort of divisions of cultural labour, attention, media economies that we see in other parts of the world, which it is very unequal um, in the sense that it's obviously dominated in this, by Australia and New Zealand, um, but it also that scholars in these countries have, have attempted to speak to the region in which we're in and also point out the role of the region within the sort of process of globalisation. And the objective of the panel then is to really demonstrate the role of sport in the construction of cultural citizenship, national symbolism and cultural participation in Oceania and the cultural power and material differences that are perpetuated by these globally and transnationally inflected processes. At the same time, um, you know, we, we'll obviously be doing this asynchronously. We invite dialogue with local and visiting sport communication scholars presently located in other parts of the world to engage with what's happening in these parts of the world as we effectively learn from each other. And at that level, what, you know, anyone watching our panel will see are four um, papers following this, led by David Rowe from the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University, and followed by Tony Bruce from the University of Auckland, Bevan Irrawiti from the School of Sport, Exercise and Nutrition at Massey University, and Holly Thorpe, Nita Ahmed from the School of Health of at Waikato University, and myself, Brett Hutchins from the School of Media and Film and Journalism at Monash University. And at this point, I will ask David to please lead off the panel. Thank you. I've got 10 minutes and uh, I, Bev, and I, uh, I am capable of uh, expatiating, as one would say, a little too much. So uh, can you give me a signal, um, Brett, if I'm, if I'm getting closer to my time? Of course. Um, so um, just to, uh, to kick off uh, and give you a little bit of background, I've been doing work on um, sport diplomacy for uh, a few years now. Um, uh, and it was kind of sparked in a way by, uh, with my connection with um, uh, the University of London SOAS and uh, its Centre for uh, uh, International Studies and, uh, and Diplomacy. So um, I, um, I wanted to say a few things because I have been tracking the Australian sports diplomacy strategy, which was uh, uh, which commenced in 2015 and uh, ran until 2018, and was replaced by something called the Sports Diplomacy 230, uh, 2030, and um, as it's uh, building it as it as it claims on the success of this, of this first strategy. Okay. Um, just tells you a little bit of, um, about, about the strategy, uh, which I think sounds, it all sounds uh, favorable, uh, unobjectionable um, in terms of uh, working specifically to empower women, strengthen disability inclusion, create leadership pathways, 
in the region, uh, Pacific, focusing on women and girls in the Pacific. Um, as and this is an Australian government's uh, you know, major commitment to enhance. And I would say, note <laughs> in that second paragraph, international engagement through sport and to advance Australia's national interests. What concerns me about this is, is that, and there's nothing terribly surprising about, about diplomacy of any kind, that it is um, a way of trying to reconcile different interests. But I'm uh, uh, somewhat concerned about the enlistment of sport um, in, in a process, in this process. And um, I, work, I think I'll, I'll give up on the, uh, on the PowerPoint, but uh, which is, there's only a second one, but uh, the strategy has a table of contents. And it strikes me that uh, the first, um, what concerns me is that the first real statement in this table the contents of the new strategy is the economic power of school, uh, economic power of sport comes first. And right near the bottom of the table of con contents, you get strengthened communities through sport in the Indo Pacific and, and beyond in capital letters. And that strikes me as um, uh, a tension which uh, we need to explore around uh, the concept of the relationship between sport and cultural citizenship, an idea that sport is, um, can be used as a, a vehicle of diplomacy, a way of, uh, of um, including people in, in civil society and so on. Um, in this case, it's attached to a development program, uh, which has its own baggage, um, um, I suppose. Um, but it also tries to set out a, a, a kind of project around, um, around the region. But my first question is, well, what is the region? Because the main reason region nominated in uh, the strategy is the Indo-Pacific, uh, which is a fairly new concept and uh, stretches from the Middle East to Hawaii. Um, and I just, I just wonder there where, where the idea of region fits in, other than a kind of an identified place on, on the globe, a rather large one, rather dispersed, and mostly, um, of, of course, occupied by water. Uh, sometimes there's a focus on Australia and our Pacific neighbours. Very, you know, very different, actually, concept of, of region, I think. And um, the uh, Oceania, which is the concept that we talked about, Brett and I kicked around Australasia at one stage and we thought no, Oceania is more inclusive. Um, Oceania is, only, is actually only mentioned once in the, uh, in the strategy. Um, ironically, in connection with uh, the Oceania Football Confederation um, receiving support from the, uh, the Australian uh, Football Federation Australia, and as I'm sure the people would know the irony that, that Australia um, football uh, left the Oceania Confederation in 2006 to join the, the larger and more prestigious Asian Football Confederation. Um, so there's a, um, a bit of an irony there in that particular conception of 
attachment to region through sport. Anyway, uh, there are a series of partnerships um, involving multiple millions of dollars, uh, the best known of which is the Pacific Sports uh, Partnership. And uh, there are others around, uh, there's an Asian Sports Partnership and the Australian, a new Australian Sports Partnerships program, uh, which focuses explicitly on six Pacific countries, Fiji, Nauru, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, Tonga and Vanuatu as well as four Asian countries, India, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Sri Lanka. Now, I just wanted to raise um, some problems that I have about Australia's positioning here in the region through sport. Um, and they relate um, outside the sphere of sport, first to its environmental policy. So the, um, the strategy is being put together, uh, is being published around the time of the uh, the Pacific Islands Forum in, in Tuvalu uh, last year, last August, a time in which uh, there, was, there were angry confrontations with the Australian government about its weak environmental policies um, and, it, and the consequences for um, Pacific Islands being inundated because of climate change. And the Deputy Prime Minister um, claiming that a way of overcoming that problem of inundation was that the Pacific Island nations could survive by coming to Australia and picking fruit, which caused um, considerable um, angst, as you can imagine. Indeed, there was, a, there were, was a, a move to push Australia off the Pacific Islands Forum altogether. Secondly, uh, there's the geopolitics, uh, particularly around China. Uh, and its so-called charm offensive, and a feeling that um, Australia, which was formerly and um, you know, still claims to be the kind of hegemonic power in the region, being uh, pushed out um, by the Ch by Chinese and uh, uh, in particular Chinese investment. So uh, there was therefore a, a, a turn back to uh, this part of the. Um, the Pacific, uh, uh, the Indo-Pacific region, um, uh, a new chapter in relations with our, uh, our Pacific family, um, special responsibilities. This is our part of the world, claimed uh, the, um, the Australian government uh, in uh, a reassertion of its place in the region. Uh, and it, it talks in the sports diplomacy uh, 2030 strategy of having a global strategy with a Pacific focus. Um, so um, it then talks about the importance of, uh, of Australian sport and Australian sporting services in the region. It mentions how popular the National Rugby League and Super Rugby are, for example, um, uh, how much it's followed in, in the region. Um, and it also talks about Australian produced sports programs being popular too. Um, and it mentions the heavy involvement of Pacific Islanders in the two Australian rugby codes. Now that you know, brings me back to the work that I did many years ago on globalization and sport um, with Toby Miller, Jim Mackay and Jeff Lawrence and what we call the new international division of cultural labor. In other words, the the trade in comparatively 
cheap um, athlete, athletic labor um, uh, across the world, and also the, um, the control of uh, media and communications infrastructure by um, certain affluent countries. Uh, in the exercise of, and this is what I think is the key tension, um, what the report talks about is the maximization of its trade, tourism, and investment opportunities. So it seems to me that there's a, 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 a clear tension here, that sometimes uh, the strategy based on sport diplomacy is, um, is straightforward, it, it, uh, it's candid, um, and it talks about advancing Australia's national interests, securing its national interests, and in particular its, eco its economic interests. It can be ambiguous when it describes Australia providing certain sporting services, which are supposed to help the sports infrastructure in the region. Um, yeah, just coming up, thank you, Brett. Um, and uh, that seems to be ambiguous because it's uncertain now um, whether that's really about, um, again, Australia selling services, exporting uh, its sporting services to the world. Um, and sometimes uh, it's coy, particularly around this, this conception of, uh, of advancing uh, uh, or, or, or um, countering inequalities of sex, age, disability, ethnicity, religion, and so on. So um, to conclude, um, in, in the discursive spaces between uh, the candid, the ambiguous, and the coy in sports diplomacy, the underlying justification for inclusion in sport as a human right and recognized in its demonstrable benefits set out in United Nations Strategic Development Goals. It seems to me that, um, that this, uh, this involvement in sport diplomacy comes with serious political economic strings attached. Um, and I'll now hand over to uh, Tony Bruce from the Faculty of Education and Social Work in the Uni of Auckland. Your paper, Tony, Negotiating Identity and Citizenship in Relation to New Zealand's National Sport inclusion and exclusion during Rugby World Cups. Thank you. Oh, um, tēnā koutou katoa everyone. Uh, mihi mahana kia koutou. Um, in English that means hello everybody and um, warm greetings to you all. My name is Tony Bruce from the Faculty of Education and Social Work at the University of Auckland and I will share my screen with you. So my focus today is um, moving from David's much more general, um, global, uh, regional kind of focus down to a very narrow focus on New Zealand as um, a country. So what I'm interested in is the way that although global sporting events like the Rugby World Cup are represented as uniting millions of people through a shared sense of belonging to something larger than themselves, they are simultaneously national events in which it's possible to observe how national identity, culture and citizenship are negotiated. So to discuss the effects of being included or excluded in national identity, culture and citizenship, I'm going to share some results from my longitudinal research on New Zealanders' reactions to the national men's rugby team, the All Blacks, during the last four Rugby World Cups. For those of you who don't know, rugby, the All Blacks have a long history of international success dating back to the early 1900s, and they serve as our most obvious source of national pride. And based on Stuart Hall's argument that personal and social interactions are privileged sites for the construction of meaning and culture, I share some of the intense feelings of pleasure, pride and joy 
resulting from the feelings of belonging to the nation and sadness, anger, and alienation experienced by those who are neither recognized nor included in dominant cultural narratives. And so this slide shows the results of over 1600 responses on my quadrennial non-representative survey to the question, how important is it that the All Blacks win the Rugby World Cup? To yourself, to other New Zealanders, and by the media. And what's interested me from the very first survey in, in 2007 is the really large gap between individuals' personal feelings, how important they think it is to themselves, and how they think other New Zealanders feel about the importance of winning. And I argue that that gap is filled by the broader media and cultural story that we tell ourselves that we are a stadium of four million people and men's rugby is our national sport. And I should note that New Zealand's population is just under five million. And this gap has quite significant effects on people within New Zealand, particularly those who feel excluded from rugby. And it's just not my um, non-representative sample that seems to show this pattern. This is a, um, another non-representative sample from New Zealand's largest newspaper, The Herald, in 2015. More than 12,000 people voted and their results came out almost exactly the same as mine. There was a large group who were only mildly or not interested in the Rugby World Cup. Yet this group is not only invisible in the media, but very aware of that exclusion from the national story. And I think the next slide makes this very, um, brings it eloquently to the fore. So this female artist explained that she felt ashamed, appalled, and as if she didn't belong to her own country because she rejected the mass delusion that everyone was totally pumped about hosting the Rugby World Cup, which New Zealand did in 2011. She also identified that many people were indifferent um, and her comments reveal not only the intense exclusion felt by those who are not rugby fans and reject the media hype, but also the recognition that their experiences are invisible and unheard. And as some other participants in my research have found out, they are actively and even violently silenced, both textually and physically. Um, for example, just by asking these questions about what about people who don't care about rugby, I've been publicly called a wet blanket, publicly criticized, um, usually by um, old white guys who are rugby fans. Um, but what's interesting is I've received a lot of positive support, but almost all of that comes to me privately via email, which again reinforces that idea that it's not a safe thing to express that you're not a fan of rugby in this country. So that's the kind of big picture. And now I wanna focus on a couple of, um, the kind of key forms of emotional engagement that people have. So we'll start with anger, rage, and devastation. Um, for rugby fans, this rugby is deeply meaningful and it can include violent and emotional reactions. Um, and these ones were the ones that emerged when the All Blacks unexpectedly lost in the quarterfinal in um, 2007. And so some of these violent physical reactions were punching things, setting things on fire, tagging negative, negative comments about the ref, referee Wayne Barnes, and someone even hacked his Wikipedia page and offered a reward if someone captured him and held him until the hacker got over there um, to, the, to, the, to Europe. They also include emotions such as devastation, heartbreak, sobbing, crying, and anger, and then physical actions that people took to try to move those emotion, emotions such as walking or going for a run. 
but the All Blacks generally don't lose. So um, because they're, they're phenomenally successful, actually, most often their, their success triggers really intense feelings of national pride, as you can see from the words at the start. Um, for a lot of the fans, this connection is obvious um, because it's the All Blacks, duh. Um, and explicitly relates to their personal identities, like the person who said, my life would be close to being over if we don't win, or it's how I identify as a Kiwi. Um, and then other people recognise that it wasn't just important to them, but it was also important to the country, such as the claim that our country lives for rugby. It's part of our culture and history. Um, however, for those fans who feel excluded from the national story, Rugby World Cups can be highly alienating experiences. And you can see the terms that people use to demonstrate this exclusion. The odd one out, unpatriotic, um, un-New Zealand, non-New Zealander, traitor, accused of blasphemy against the national religion, wet rag, and looked at strangely. All of these demonstrate clear feelings of not being included within the nation. And others have described feeling like a leper. Um, one saw a male punch a female just because she said she wasn't interested in the Rugby World Cup. So we can see that they're not um, just textually violent, they can also involve physical violence. So now what I want to do is just look at um, three quick effects, or quickly look at three quick effects at, um, that have resulted from rugby's quite late entry into professionalism because rugby only became professional in 1995. And so one of the first things is a fairly strong resistance in New Zealand to the commercialization of the All Blacks, um, especially the way that corporations attach themselves to the team. So here's some of the many products and um, I will read you some of the quotes from people who uh, reacted to these. So one person wrote, I'm sick to death of the marketing campaigns world nationwide. Why do we need black milk bottles with jersey numbers on them? It's ridiculous, followed by about 45 exclamation marks. Stop rebranding my milk bottles for crying out loud. Another person wrote, the Rugby World Cup feels more all-encompassing and invasive getting into your fridge. The All Blacks are a commercial brand posing as a national sports team. I feel a false sense of identity. And one person kind of summed up that overall um, experience by saying, I don't hate rugby. I just find the game mind-numbingly boring. And I find the professional game, the All Blacks in particular, to be over-commercialized. Not to mention the ABs being way too overexposed, be it silly stories in the press about their favorite songs or what they had for breakfast that morning, to their endorsement of any product imaginable from milk to credit cards and anything else in between that can be painted black. The second key point of resistance was what people called the media hype. And many really hate this, um, which has actually, along with commercialization, turned off even former rugby fans. So one wrote, I did once enjoy rugby before the high profile hype and professionalism. Um, another said, I can't wait for it all to be over. Let's go back to that. Um, had a guts full of all the media hype. Another person wrote, media killers actually reduced any enthusiasm for the games. I think the real problem isn't with rugby or the Rugby World Cup, but the way the media ram it down everyone's throat. And the extreme nation of this, nature of this media focus showed in 2019 when New Zealand's largest circulation daily paper, the New Zealand Herald, um, reacted to the All Black semi-final loss by publishing its Sunday front paper, all in black, the color of mourning, with very small text that read, the All Blacks are out of the World Cup. If you want to read more, go to the sports section. And the final area is politicization. 
and this was a very big reaction in 2015, was the way that our Prime Minister, John Key, who's in the centre on the left, um, inserted himself into the All Blacks coverage. And people use terms like detest, can't stand, majorly turned off, political pawns, John Key's playthings, um, ruining the All Blacks brand, riding on their coattails, swooning, fawning, hijacked. There was a really strong pushback to this. Um, and one said, it's the political involvement that has turned me from part of the silent majority who couldn't care less into a full-blown hater. Others wrote, rugby's been hijacked by John Key, or I find his behavior in sucking up to the All Blacks to be demeaning to both himself and the All Blacks. So to quickly conclude, I hope this short presentation has given you some insight into the complex and contradictory ways that the All Blacks engage New Zealanders' emotions and feelings of belonging and of not belonging to the nation. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tato katoa. Um, we now turn to uh, Bevan, uh, who will be presenting on Kamua, Kamuri, uh, walking backward into the future, deconstructing media misconceptions of the haka during the 2019 Rugby World Cup. Thanks, Bevan, over to you. Kia mai tato. Oh, Keaku nui, keaku rahi, keaku rauranga tirama, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, my warmest greetings to you all from my bubble here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, to yours, wherever that may be at this time. Uh, to my fellow panellists, uh, thank you for inviting me and the opportunity to, um, to share my thoughts of the juncture of indigeneity, sport and media. And to all who can hear my voice, um, there's a mantra I'm living by at the moment, noho tāwhiti tu kotahi, sitting at a distance but standing as one. I hope you're all safe and well uh, at this time. Uh, this presentation is titled Kamua Kamuri, Walking Backward into the Future. The term Kamua Kamuri is a shortened form of a very well-known Māori proverb, Te tiro whakamuri ka haere whakamua, I walk backwards into the future with my eyes fixed on my past. Māori perspectives of time where the past, the present and the future are viewed as intertwined, where indeed the past is central to and shapes both present and future identity. Succinctly, as Māori, our past guides us into the future. This presentation critiques the superficiality in which the haka was depicted in media during the 2019 Rugby World Cup in Japan and encourages a deeper appreciation of the haka, its meaning as a traditional element deeply rooted in the Māori world, its treasured past, and its greater significance as a reference that empowers the history of people, place, and identity of Aotearoa New Zealand today and the future. Sorry. Apologies, dear Fano. The ninth um, meeting or greeting of the Rugby World Cup was the first time it was held, of, held outside of the traditional uh, heartland of rugby union. 
but it gave rise to wonderful globalised examples of where sport can bring people together and celebrate a rich tapestry of culture, tradition and language. However, it was on the field with the New Zealand All Black pre-game ritual, the haka became a focal point of contention for sport media columnists and commentators. While media narratives contain powerful messages that can generate respect and admiration for those involved in sport, it can also perpetrate deficit perspectives and in respect to this presentation, whether intentional or not, those narratives lowered the status of the haka to a dance and as a psychological trick to gain an unfair advantage. Uh, but these comments would soon become quite redundant. These two photos provide two unique perspectives of the All Blacks performing the haka before the start of their semi-final match against England. The photo on the left depicts the modi, the vitality and mana, the integrity and status of the All Blacks. The photo on the right depicts England's response, the V-shape signifying their integrity and their status and their vitality. I thought England's response, while surprising at first, was befitting of both teams. It showed respect to the All Blacks while sustaining England's uniqueness. I, I thought it was awesome. The captain of the England team, Owen Farrell, who could be seen smirking during the haka, said, we wanted not to just stand there and let them come at us. England player Manu Tuialangi supported that it's an honour to stand there in front of the haka and accept the challenge. Well, uh, England did more than accept the haka. Uh, they took it, converted it, that energy, and beat the All Blacks 19-7. Now, putting the loss and fallout aside, that's already been spoken about, the allblacks.com website and their team of social media and global broadcasting analysts have publicly declared that the Rugby World Cup was one of the most watched and engaged sports events of the decade. But most interestingly, in contributing to that captive audience, with a recorded 22 million plus views across all platforms and channels to that semi-final haka. Whether it was the intensity in which the All Blacks performed the haka or England's distinct, distinctive response that drew in viewers, the haka lived up to the hype of media consum consumerism and questions yet again the tension concerning the commodification of the haka. Uh, but that's a different issue for a different time. Nonetheless, linking the haka to notions of performance outcomes or as a mental skills tactic or as an act of deception to obstruct the opposition's warm-up routines is far-reaching at best. Interestingly, the debate of performance-enhancing haka did not seem to be applied consistently to other nations who performed pre-game rituals, such as our Pacific brothers do, the Siva Tau of Samoa, the Thimbi by Fiji, or the Sipi Tau by Tonga. Perhaps the media didn't feel threatened by these teams in terms of competition. But in my analysis of media discourse concerning the haka during the Rugby World Cup, I came across a very concerning and poorly written article published in the Herald Sun that depicted these so-called war cries, the haka included, in less flattering ways that once again failed to acknowledge the richness of culture and heritage. And so in discussing history and with my eyes fixed on the past, the haka is not merely a physical act. Historically, some All Black teams in the past and early renditions of the haka were cringeworthy attempts and bereft of the spiritual aspects that symbolises the relationships between physical elements and the metaphysical realm of Māori belief systems. 
The haka would not receive this depth of understanding and attributed meaning until almost a century later where Hika Reed and Buck Shelford revolutionized the teaching of the haka during their time as players within the All Blacks and insisted that it be imbued with a sense of wairua, the spiritual dimension of Māori epistemology, a concept that is fundamental to Māori ways of being. This approach has been strengthened mostly due to the relationship that the New Zealand Rugby Union now has with Ngāti Toa Rangatira, the tribe who has proprietorship of the haka, Kamati, and the guidance of a highly regarded performing arts proponent, Matua Derek Lardelli, who wrote and gifted the kapo or pango haka that is perhaps performed less frequently. These partnerships ensure that all involved with the All Blacks, the management, coaching staff, and players develop a deeper appreciation for the haka and its value beyond its pre-game ritual status. So because of Wayne Buck Shelford's mana, his status in rugby, he was approached for comment regarding the way in which the media narrative described the haka during the Rugby World Cup. Now, I've never been lucky enough to talk to the man, the legend that is Wayne Buck Shelford, but his response that you can see here contains several pertinent usages. He makes it very clear that the haka has been misinterpreted. He is fiercely protective of it, um, a responsibility that he no doubt maintained and carried, given that he was the captain of the All Blacks, and also was the teacher of the haka. And he also warns the writer that they should stick to what they know, which is apparently writing about rugby. And if you couldn't tell, Shelford suggests that they should find a new job. Um, that's pretty rough. But what you don't see in this specific snippet that I've got for you here on this slide um, is that further down in his, in his words, he presents a uh, and a reference to a life-changing event involving World Cup winning Australian captain and rugby legend John Eels that poignantly addresses and corrects the wayward message provided by the media. Now we have to go back a little bit here in, in terms of the history. The event is the 1996 Bettersloe Cup uh, match at Athletic Park in Wellington, the capital city in New Zealand. And in preparing for that test match, Eels explains that he was still relatively new in his captaincy. And although he felt internally conflicted, as did many other players, he agreed to go with the then Wallaby coach Greg Smith's suggestion of warming up while the All Blacks performed the hugger. And this the hucker, and this triggered outrage across both sides of the ditch. Now the tactic didn't work as the Wallabies suffered their biggest loss to the All Blacks, a 43-6 battering. While the scoreline will be immortalized in the history books and perhaps forgotten over time, the damage Eels endured remained deep within. By his own admission, Eels refers to his team's actions as his one and only regret in his illustrious playing career and has rued that decision ever since. And in his efforts to make peace with his past, a one-hour documentary titled John Eels Reveals the Haka has been produced that follows his journey to understand the deep cultural, historical, social and communal aspects that makes the haka not just the greatest pre-match ritual in the world, but a pivotal part of Aotearoa New Zealand's culture and identity. But there's no need to fear. The one and only All Black legend Wayne Buck Shelford ensures that Eels is safely immersed in the haka, traversing across Aotearoa New Zealand, going and seeing Māori communities and places like Rotorua, all the way to Eden Park, the hallowed ground of rugby in Auckland, to seek his road through to redemption. 
Shelford movingly expresses, he provides for us that the haka is not about being ossified in tradition, but treasuring the past while looking to the future. Eels exemplifies that with understanding, empathy, and compassion for the haka and its mana, its status, and the wider, the spirituality it has, can pull people from diverse backgrounds together in revolutionary ways. This presentation is an invitation and a call for all to do what Eels has done, to go back to the future. If that request seems too unrealistic for most journalists, then perhaps a term that I have learned from Māori Indigenous scholars will be more helpful. Stay in your lane. I would never ask any media representative, individual or organisation to stop what they love, to stop diminishing and marginalising what I love, cherish and hold dear. Write about your own ancestry, traditions and culture, and leave mine alone. My ancestors stood up creating a safe harbour for someone like me to be a part of the healing process. In that light, I've come to learn that my role as an academic comes with massive responsibility to build on my ancestors' paradigm. Even if it takes, as Buck Shelford showed us with the example of John Eels, one person at a time. All journalists, you're welcome. Kia manua nui, kia uh, Be strong and stay safe. Tēnā nō tātou katoa. Thank you. Um, thank you, Bevan. Um, it's fascinating. And a really lovely link between Tony and your papers. Um, yeah, yeah. So, thank you. And at this point, we'll uh, move to Holly Thorpe and Nita Ahmed from the School of Health at Waikato University. All right. Thank you so much, Brett. And uh, yeah, thanks to Brett and David uh, for organising this panel. And it's a great honour for Nita and I to both be here um, to speak on this topic and to be part of this panel and also to be coming after uh, Tony and Bevan, who did such a wonderful job of providing um, this, the, the important foundation and the context of um, identity, cultural identities in New Zealand Aotearoa. We'll hope to, to build upon that with a slightly different angle now. And our paper is titled Building Cultural Diversity in Sport, a Critical Dialogue with Muslim Women and Sports Facilitators. On March 15, 2019, two consecutive terrorist shooting attacks occurred at mosques in the city of Christchurch. These events killed 51 Muslims and injured nine others during Friday prayer. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern described it as one of New Zealand's darkest days. Following this tragic event, issues of anti-immigration, racism and Islamophobia have been brought to the forefront. The New Zealand government and many organisations across the country are rethinking processes of inclusion amid a multicultural society with a strong bicultural framework. In this context, some are considering, it for the first time, how sport might be a place of social inclusion or exclusion for the Muslim community and the work that needs to be done to build more inclusive and supportive sporting environments. Interestingly, um, researchers uh, internationally and researchers have examined Muslim women's experience of sport and physical activity for decades. These studies provide useful insights into the various ways Muslim women navigate faith and sport, some of the barriers surrounding it. However, majority of the research has been conducted in Europe, in North America, and Australia. Here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, there has been very limited research examining Muslim women's participation in sport. 
our research is based in the context of post-March 15th, where these issues can no longer be ignored. In our research, we set out to explore the understandings and experiences of Muslim women, as well as the sports providers here in Aotearoa. We also wanted to understand the efforts, the barriers and challenges <clears throat> to building a more uh, culturally inclusive inclusivity in sport and active recreation, and particularly meeting the needs of Muslim women. So this project was funded by an internal grant from the University of Waikato and was in collaboration with strategic partners in the New Zealand sports sector. Nita and I co-led this project and the cross-cultural collaboration was critical to the design and implementation. The project includes focus groups with 38 Muslim women and interviews with 14 sports facilitators across three regions of the North Island. We also conducted a policy analysis of New Zealand sports organisations to be able to explore what they were saying and then how that was being interpreted and lived by Muslim women within the community. So the Muslim women participants, they were racially and ethnically diverse. Their ages ranged from 16 to 63 years old. Their level of participation in physical activity ranged from training as an international athlete, um, standard athlete, to casually we uh, weekly um, active recreation, and the sports um, varied greatly as well. In regards to the sports facilitators, their age was 23 to 51 years old. And of the sample, there were 10 women and four men. Five were working in the regional sports sector, and nine were involved in grassroots sports programs within their local communities. Despite our persistent efforts to invite leaders in the New Zealand sports industry, none were willing to speak with, to this topic. So all of the Muslim women in our sample expressed the perceived value of sport and active recreation in their lives, recognizing its importance for their physical health, mental well-being, and sense of belonging and relationships with other women and community members. Despite many participants finding and or creating opportunities to participate in sport and active recreation, some spoke about family or community members who discouraged their participation due to cultural norms. But others received support and encouragement. For example, Lena described her mother as really supportive and as the one that got her into football in the first place. While Amina spoke of the support of her father, explaining, my dad really encouraged it, and this is boxing participation, and would say, no, this is good, continue getting stronger and fitter. Importantly, despite some challenges in navigating family and community expectations, the primary barrier that the woman identified was access to culturally inclusive and supportive sporting environments and facilities. So the women repeatedly expressed concerns about not feeling welcome, or in some cases, feeling um, in cases they were explicitly excluded from sports programs and facilities. Some also encountered hostility from other athletes and active recreation participants. Many of the women described um, their frustrations on this one-dimensional perception of Muslim women as being oppressed. As Zaina, she commented in this um, quote, there's too many, uh, um, too many sports facilitators don't want to put in the effort of learning. The Muslim women in our study are all active participants in their sporting communities with critical insights into their ongoing inequalities that impact upon their everyday sporting engagement. Yet their voices are rarely heard by those creating and implementing these so-called diversity policies in Aotearoa, New Zealand sports sector. 
Some of the sports facilitators that we were speaking with, they were making genuine efforts to build cultural understanding, including trying to learn more about Islam and appropriate cultural practices when interacting with Muslim men and women. A number of the sports facilitators, however, still had stereotypical understandings of Islamic family, cultural and religious issues that did not reflect the diversity of the community. Some also held problematic assimilationist perspectives over more multiculturalist or interculturalist approaches. And some of them were really resisted creating women-only sporting spaces, as was desired by many of the women that we spoke with. It's important to note that none of the sports facilitators had received any cultural training in how to work effectively with the Muslim community, but this was something that they all recognised as wanting and needing. We found the different cultural understanding strategies among the grassroots sports facilitators. These participants were all from ethnic minority groups and were involved in organizing a range of programs for ethnic groups, which also included Muslim women and girls. Each of these sports facilitators was going to great lengths to understand the cultural needs of Muslim women. Some of the grassroots providers expressed frustration and the lack of support and cultural understanding from the national level um, sporting bodies. This was particularly the case um, when it came to asking for uh, religious exceptions in regards to the hijab. And as this quote illustrates, many of our grassroots facilitators acknowledged the need to address everyday racism in the sports sector. Two of our grassroots sports facilitators were Muslim women and they were focused on providing uh, more women-only spaces which they had found to be very limited in New Zealand. For example, Noor established a woman-only boxing class that is popular among Muslim women, and Shakira had, uh, was dedicating herself to organising women-only swimming sessions. So despite the challenges of carving out space for Muslim women in the predominantly white and Western-dominated sports sector, in talking with the Muslim women, we learned that uh, Muslim women and ethnic minority sports facilitators are in fact highly agentic in their efforts to create change in the New Zealand sporting sector. In the context of post-March 15th, significant investments in, is being placed on building national sporting policies that are culturally diverse and inclusive. Despite the emphasis on such policies at the micro level in everyday practice, Muslim women do not feel that their unique religious and cultural affiliations are well understood or even respected. While Muslim women are out there participating in a wide range of sports and active recreation, they do not feel supported in their um, participation and they remain largely ignored and invisible. Our research also revealed that those working with Muslim women continue to hold problematic stereotypes of Muslim women as passive to oppressive religious regimes. But bringing the voices and the lived experiences of Muslim women and sports facilitators together, we also identified a significant inconsistency in the interpretation of the barriers for Muslim women's participation in sport and active recreation. So whereas the Muslim women identified access to culturally inclusive spaces as their primary barrier, the sports facilitators located the problem, the problem in the women's religious culture. So if New Zealand is truly committed to building a more inclusive multicultural society, more work does need to be done in revising policies and practices that better represent the needs of ethnic minority groups. And this work will be greatly enhanced by creating spaces for the voices of Muslim women themselves, as well as more cross-cultural collaborations and conversations such as the approach 
that has underpinned this entire project. And just yesterday, the New Zealand government announced that there will be $25 million redirected to supporting community and grassroots sports in the recovery from COVID-19. And we really hope to see more sporting groups and organisations focusing on how to rebuild sport and active recreation as more equitable and inclusive of our multicultural communities. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Holly and Nita. Um, it was, I mean, a really interesting way the papers are flowing together. Thank you. Um, and my paper, which is, is really dealing with this, this question of cultural citizenship. And it really, uh, I think, one, it's been a, a really interesting panel in the way the papers have flowed together, but I'm really trying to get at the problem of, you know, who is seen and heard and listened to and supported and just picking up on some of the, the themes presented in the previous papers. And really importantly, who gets to speak and be properly represented and what that means for our understanding of, of culture, nation and region. Um, and I'm, when I say my paper is how much is too much, it's a genuine question. And it's really around the idea of sport, media centrism and the dominance of the football codes in Oceania. And particularly, really, I, I, I probably more accurately should have been called the Pacific, um, uh, the Pacific region. And this moment we're in, COVID-19, is a really interesting moment, given there is no sport actually going on. All right, mate because, sorry, am I having the same problem Bevan did? Oh, there we are. Um, at a time where there is no sport, what is then being talked about in the context of sport? In other words, if, we, if there are no events, there are no results, there are no highlights, um, there are no competitions going, what is being spoken about in relation to sport? And time and time again, partly by virtues of resource and historical advantages, it is major football competitions. So, if we look in Australia, this was from uh, Thursday of last week from memory, which is a very um, snapshot from different sort of news sites from around the region. So in Australia, um, it's very much around uh, football, the usual codes being rugby league and AFL, um, with a bit of rugby thrown in. In New Zealand, of course, uh, the dominance of rugby. Um, in places like Fiji, uh, again, uh, rugby league and rugby, the Solomon Times, uh, football or soccer, um, Papua New Guinea, again, rugby league, um, and Vanuatu being, in, uh, at least from just a very, very small and unrepresentative sample, just as a way of making a point, um, we at least see headlines about beach volleyball. Um, and this is at a time when no sport is going on. And this sort of leads through into, I think, uh, if you, you think of the sort of content and quantitative work that's been done just on what is shown on screens week to week in places like Australia and New Zealand, some parts of the Pacific, is that we do see the dominance of codes like Super Rugby, oh, sorry, Rugby Union, Rugby League, AFL um, and soccer with, you know, thankfully, uh, netball having made broken through into at least sort of regular presence on our screens. And this also takes us through into representative and special event sport in which, um, again, we see rugby, things like state of origin, um, and of course, Oceania and soccer, um, and what I regard to be as a, a pretty manufactured attempt on AFL to make out that it has some level of international relevance, despite its national dominance uh, and popularity. Um, 
And it's this sort of intersection between industry, market, media systems uh, and culture that I, that I think really needs to be um, a question and ways of sort of thinking about this in different ways and I suppose broadening the ways we imagine sport in the popular imagination. And the question I really have is, in, it, it terms, is really, are we talking about um, obscuring the sorts, I suppose, realities and experience that Holly and Nita have just spoken about because of the fact that there is just simply so much men's elite level football in the region um, on our screens. Um, even though, and I do admit, and then I'm, I admit my own ambivalence here because it is incredibly important. Um, and I am certainly part of this, to acknowledge the historical and cultural importance, meaning and uh, enjoyment drawn from um, watching football throughout the region, but at the same time, trying to actually deal with the reality in which you argue, have an arguable unhealthy sort of market media and cultural advantages accruing to long dominant men's football codes and competitions, mainly operating from the major commercial centres of Australia and New Zealand. So even within Australia and New Zealand, you see certain imbalances between cities and regions because of where major commercial cities sit, uh, centres sit in relation to sponsorship markets and advertising. And while um, certainly David and the work David and I have done over the years suggested perhaps at the time of, you know, the advent of digital media, some of these imbalances might be redressed by the fact that more content, more screens, more opportunities to have different sorts of sports and different populations and different cultural groups represented. A lot of the evidence suggests that these have really only been accelerated, intensified, and, and there are very good reasons for this. And it goes back to a quote from um, our book, Sport Beyond Television, in which, of course, even in a, I suppose, a, a proliferating environments of, or proliferating media content environments, it's those with resources and the ability to produce professional quality that basically means it becomes more, more possible than ever to consume more than ever about the same group of sports. And I think if you look at the football leagues um, across the region, um, th there is certainly enough evidence there to suggest that is the case. Um, but certainly at the moment when there's no football, it seems we're still talking about football. Um, which raises the idea of the term media centrism, um, which I have then simply flipped to football centrism, and that we have a really a concentration of symbolic power. And if you think of Nick Caldrew's concept of the myth of the mediated centre, it's like what's at stake there? And it's while it's, it is speaking at a very macro level, it's really trying to come to terms with the power that media has on the, literally the production of realities, that the, the way we understand the world. And Caldry, you know, what, 17 years ago now, speaks to the idea that many of us live with it. At some level, the media speaks to the social world, the center of the social world we live in. And if you then think about the reality of sport, the diversity of sport, the different groups playing it, um, the different organizations, everything from recreational, um, there is a lot more going on, but if one is to examine the screens and media content, the sorts of consumption practices that go on around, for, you know, if you were to think of what was sort of sitting at the centre of the popular, popular imagination, the answer keeps coming back, men's football. 
Um, and that, of course, leads to, of course, issues such as David mentioned around the sorts of athletic labour and the sorts of opportunities that are made possible feeding through into the same competitions and in which sort of talent pathways and talent identification occurs and in which we see heavy dominance of sort of populations um, throughout the Pacific playing, you know, in the NRL, in Super Rugby and so on. And I really think that given that we are in a moment of global crisis, that it is very important to sort of the ways in which our screens dominate this perception of what's occurring at the moment is, of course, what isn't being seen. So certainly in Australia, there is not a lot of sort of news coming out of the experience of COVID-19 throughout the Pacific or indeed large parts of Oceania. So football being, I suppose, a more benign version of that problem in that we, we don't really get access to the diverse sporting cultures and practices that exist throughout and within the different nations of the region in which we live. And it draws attention away from understanding or acknowledgement, indeed financial support or government funding for sort of indigenous traditions and competitions, various women's leagues, many different types of lifestyle and action sports, seasonal festival carnivals, um, and of course, many, many uh, semi-professional amateur competitions and disability sports. And in some senses, um, sport as a human right, sport as a key component of cultural citizenship and political representation and access to funding and commercial opportunities, we need to deal or at least start acknowledging this problem and then sort of working out what might be done about it. And given, and simply, and I offer the following slide purely as a provocation on which to end is how would one go about trying to diversify the range of representations? Who's being seen? How are they being listened to? is the idea of playing around with the idea of a, a publicly funded, new publicly funded sports service for, called Oceania Sport. And again, purely a provocation at the level that um, I think in a moment in which I think we perhaps have all discovered the flaws of sort of neoliberal late capitalism um, and that the financialized market of sport that is increasingly being um, exposed to, indeed to the tech sector um, and to models of private ownership, it's, it's this precise moment that public service media um, has a, a genuine opportunity to actually re-announce its relevance. And if we, you know, if the idea of the governments of Australia and New Zealand, um, as well as other nations, but Australia and New Zealand particularly, sort of producing a service or for helping to fund a service dedicated to the coverage of sport in its all its forms throughout the regions. Um, particularly given the opportunities that would potentially offer for media training and program co-creation with communities throughout the region and news stories that could be produced in cooperation with all the existing news outlets um, you know, throughout the region made available under a crowd of Commons licence. Um, and of course, we then have the question of communications infrastructure, because I think in some ways we are talking about broadcast media in large parts of the regions. But for those with um, sort of where, where possible, places like Australia and New Zealand, particularly um, online streaming, and certainly modelling on sort of the models such as National Indigenous Television and Australia Mary Television, and of course, drawing on um, the expertise of Television New Zealand and ABC Australia. And I suppose if I was to sort of draw back to, you know, one of the things when David and I were speaking about proposing this panel and the idea that we would have people coming from Asia, from Europe, from North America, 
is trying to sort of develop a, a, or convey a much better understanding of just the richness of the cultures throughout Oceania and indeed the Pacific. And that, that you know, we ne there is a really important need to present sport in all its form and to advance the cultures, enjoyments and mutual understandings of people, not only of peoples and nations throughout Oceania, but of course globally. And I think sport has a potentially important role to play there. So thank you very much. I mean, there are a whole series of of, uh, of intersecting themes here, um, but I suppose um, one thing just I could just kick off with is how how useful do you think the concept of region is in the kind of analysis that we've been advancing here? I suggested it was a little, let's say, malleable. Um, are you finding it a, a kind of useful concept? We've we've ranged across the nation, the global um, region, obviously somewhere in between. Um, does anyone want to comment on on that? The efficacy of the concept? Only maybe to say that just even just our papers amongst ourselves show how complex it is. Like, what is the region? How do you define it? Who gets included or, or doesn't get included within whatever region you, you decide is your area of focus? So um, I've been working with some of my students on the idea of the Pacific. But somewhat to my surprise, actually, when I went and looked at what officially the Pacific was, I realized that Fiji isn't included. It sits on the border and it's seen to be part of Melanesia and not the Pacific. And so, but yet when we think about the way we talk about the Pacific in New Zealand, Fiji is included in it. So I think there's something about, you know, not wanting to desire or search for some kind of all encompassing definition or way of understanding. It's more maybe thinking about ways of understanding and what what label we put on that or what purpose we we define something for is probably more important than the name itself. Yeah, I'd agree, Tony. I think your point about the complexities across these papers, but more broadly across this this region, within each country there's such different histories. Um, so for our paper, for example, I mean, there has been some wonderful work on Muslim women's experience in Australia, um, but that's, you know, we might see some parallels in New Zealand, but obviously we're also in a very different context here, or we, I haven't seen any work, but, you know, if there was work on Muslim women's experiences of sport and fitness in, in Fiji, for example, that context uh, is so important. So I think we do need to be really careful not to not to lose that nuance and those histories and and as Bevan showed us before it is so important that we actually recognize probably those differences rather than try to do some broad brushstrokes across our region but then it is interesting to ask what if we were to maybe it helps to have those conversations with those from the northern hemisphere for example to what makes us to this part of the world uh, maybe part of that is our our distance or our isolation or um, bodies of water. I don't know what that might be, but it's certainly a. Um, I think the differences are probably more important than the, the broad brushstrokes. And uh, look, I, and it's part of what sits at the core of the panel. I, I, I keep. I mean, having sat at so many, I having sat at ICA and IAMCR over the years, you know, I. I think 
the sort of work going on in this part of the world, we, we, you know, there isn't enough of it actually even asking these sorts of questions and, and really representing what the region is. And it is interesting to even, and even just that variation within the region, because, you know, there's this idea of where you place boundaries. And I take the point about the, the diplomacy strategy, having read it, you know, the Indo-Pacific sort of idea does stand out. It's like, this is something we can roll out anywhere, anytime, for whatever purpose, you know, but at the same time, talk, yeah, but to what function and, and, and where. And it, it was interesting to see um, that policy come up every time, you know, cricket gets played with India um, and then it sort of disappears again. Or if perhaps there's uncomfort or discomfort in the popular media here about, you know, all of a sudden it turns out, you know, China happens to be offering economic sort of support for various island nations and, and all of a sudden you see this talk of the di diplomacy strategy um but there's also a reality of the sort i suppose work to be done on actually tracing what are the, the population cultural economic and cultural flows within this region you know and what what do they sort of what does that create in terms of coherence and, and where does where does the blue inner edge at the borders and speak to connections with other regions throughout the world um and my sense at the moment is there's been a bit of work done in soccer um I've noticed in sort of pacific and things like that and there's a lot of great part of the panelists just to recognize there's lots of great work going on but how do we sort of start trying to bring it together i mean we we have used this kind of um as a kind of master concept uh cultural citizenship and um and i've kind of worried away about this for um a few years as to to what extent um you know sport and the sport and cultural citizenship fit together i mean we often talk about in this region and other places the idea of sport is some kind of vehicle of inclusion and, and so on and i i just wondered um, what people? Hi, turning you back. Hi, I know. I don't know what happened there. No. Um, I just want. I wonder what. Um, I mean, you could also make a case, and it came through, for example, in Tony's paper, that um, that sport can 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 close things off, can shut people down, can can exclude as much as as it can include, and I'm not always sure that we. Um, but certainly sports organisations kind of get both sides of that. Whenever I, I'm talking about sport diplomacy or the, the social benefits of sport, um, people seem to want to suppress that side of it, like a dirty secret. I think that's what we were trying to get at in our paper. It might have been a little bit too subtle. Um, but but that I, those kinds of ideologies of sport and the power of sport for cultural diplomacy or cultural citizenship or, I mean, that's what we're definitely the sort of stuff we're seeing in New Zealand policy increasingly over the last year or so. Um, but then, and particularly, you know, sport and, and inclusivity and diversity and um, all, of, all of this. And then when it comes down in terms of how it's experienced and practice, very different. So I think the same thing happens in, you know, sport for development um, work more broadly and, and sport diplomacy, et cetera. We have these 
very romantic, often Western-centric ideas of the power of sport. But when it comes into local communities that are so contested and embodied and navigated and tensions come up. So what level are we talking about? it? Are we talking about it at the policy level or are we coming right down into local um, spaces? And that's where I think um, the, these big ideas break down. Can I... Jump in. I just uh, one thing you said, Brett, right near the end of yours. Thanks, Holly. I totally agree with you. Is that idea of it's kind of like what isn't being shown, like what isn't being talked about, what's not being thought about, um, and so that kind of leads me back around to that idea, which I think that neither and Holly's work's doing, which is that you know too much of this comes from the top down, so it's well-meaning people trying to achieve what they believe are equitable and inclusive outcomes. But if we're not actually working from the bottom up and talking to the people who are, as I think Holly, I don't know if you use the word recipients, but the people who are receiving whatever it is that we're trying to, to give them. And if we don't actively want to go out and find out what people want, then things like cultural diplomacy are doomed to just continue failing in many ways because they are about Australia's national interests. They're not really about the interests of the people who are the recipients of whatever um, largesse Australia would like to pass out or the New Zealand government would like to pass out. So, you know, I, I, I don't think it's an easy thing to solve because if it was, we would have, you know, solved this a whole lot of mm. years ago, if not millennia ago. So, but there's something about trying to find a balance between that downward pressure and then upward needs that doesn't seem to work very well in many places. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, actually, Bevan, your paper finished with sort of a, a statement around uh, sort of that notion of who, 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 should, who should speak and under what circumstances, I suppose. So, I mean, if, what, sort of invite you to sort of, I suppose, add some more there about just that the way that needs to work at least in dialogue as opposed to perhaps the way it gets done usually, which is not in dialogue. Kapoi and uh, kia ora, thank you um, once again for all the enlightening uh, presentations and papers that have been, that have been given. Um, the first point around this idea of conglomeration of knowledge and, and who gets to speak um, is obviously um, very much contentious and in the Māori world. For instance, there aren't just a, a couple of tribes here. There are, there are about 80, 90 different tribes that identify now. Now, 15 years ago, it was only 40 something. So each, each group is now starting to have their voice. Um, what I wanted to get across today is that I was getting across a, a general perspective of Māori knowledge, but that's, there's also a, a caution that comes with that because there is no such thing as a homogenous knowledge of knowledge. Um, of Māori knowledge. It's based at the, the tribal and the, and the iwi um, locations. So when we're talking about Oceania, for instance, um, I, I don't know who we're talking about either, unless we're talking about, you know, specific peoples and, and hearing their stories. Um, in terms of the, the challenge, um, and thank you, Brett, for, for mentioning it. I, I wasn't sure how that was going to go down, to be honest, but I just ran with it. Um, I, did, I did say that it was actually Māori and Indigenous academics that have challenged me 
and staying in my own lane and what that and what that means for me which is why this backdrop means so much so th this is my home of taranaki um, a province um, in the north island and is it's got this massive icon of a mountain uh, it's also been known as mount egmont now i could no more talk about any other maori iwi than um, then we could talk about other other peoples, even though I identify as Maori. So that that becomes the challenge, and that's why um, the the media interpretations of the haka. Um, if I if I choose to, and I could um, just wave them away and go, oh yeah, um, that, that's no issue. But it's the it's the message that it's getting out, you know, the, the audience that it's getting out to and, and how it incites a different perspective. And that's what concerns me. Um, so I am, um, I'm, I'm deeply aware, and I, I did mention this episode briefly, but Tony and had, had uh, a big part of this in her, in her paper um, around the commodification and the, and the consumer ideas of, of the haka. I'm hugely aware of that. But I would wish that was that was not what the, the haka was about and what, what it's become. And so um, this idea of looking after things that, that come from our, our entrenched history and past and in terms of Māori traditions um, is the balance between being not being too precious about it because we want to show it and we want people to engage with it, but also to be mindful of ensuring that it's its nature, its sacred nature is also protected and looked after. It's trying to find that balance. And um, I know that I know that the All Blacks, regardless of how the haka is talked about and perceived, I know they will see it as, well, good or bad news, we're getting some coverage around this. And that's what that's that's what my major discussions have been with and conversations have been with Māori academics here is yeah, I, I totally get that bigger outcome and that bigger picture. Um, how can we ensure that Māori knowledge and whatever form it may take um, is, is looked after? And that's why the individual voices need to be heard so, so much, is those smaller marginalised voices. Um, I'd love to learn more about the Thimbi Fijian challenge, as it's called. You know, I'd love to hear more about the the history of that rather than the way that it's talked about in terms of being savage and, and barbaric in terms of its approach um, and, and how it's perceived. So yeah, it's those kinds of stories to help build this idea um, um, that if we can use media as an educated tool, one of the better term. I might be being way too idealistic here, you know, um, for that to occur, but that's, um, those are my kind of feelings around how this panel was was brought together um well, just sorry could i just jump in there i mean obviously because there's been a been a debate in australia about um yeah an indigenous um uh, um harker or harkers aboriginal and torres strait islander and so on um and i was thinking as you were talking um and and also with tony mentioning the enormous media pull of the you know of the haka um you know i i would be really disappointed if if it was taken away but i was just thinking but i was actually trying to be honest with myself as to why and it and really for me it's 
more about spectacle than anything else. It's it's more about spectacle than than any kind of Maori identity. I mean, I, I kind of get that it is, but um, but I think in the context of a mega media sport event, um, the um, you know that is that is kind of lost. It's the you know it's the exciting part of the spectacle, um, and the rest gets uh, washed away a little. But maybe. That's A, inevitable, and B, not such a bad thing if it means that at some point people have been acquainted with it and may follow it up, if you see what I mean. I do, and that is the, um, those are those fine boundaries, aren't they? Is the, the opportunity for people to learn about uh, different cultures, whether it's ours or, or others. Um, it was a really awesome example of the Welsh uh, training session that happened in Japan. And um, the 15,000 Japanese people that went to go watch that training session, they sung um, the national anthem, the, the Welsh national anthem. And, um, and it was in that, in that light that I, I thought, hey, this is going to be a, a different kind of Rugby World Cup. I don't know if this is because of the hospitality of Japan and their embracing of, of certain cultures, but they certainly... Um, provided a, a wonderful example on how to engage appropriately with those things. But I certainly um, get your point, which is why I talk about even, even this is contentious within the whole All Blacks brand, you know, that the haka has been, is, is utilised in this way. Um, and for some of us who write and talk about it in, in this light, there is this propensity to in, ensure that it's, its sacred nature is also looked after and cared for, which is why the the education around it now in New Zealand is, is very pertinent and important. Um, I would hate for it to go too. And as another example, in a previous life, I um, I was a, a coach of, you know, of some repute a long time ago, and I actually visited Australia and they asked us, and this is in the, the realm of volleyball, and um, we went to the the... the managers team coaches meeting it was a, a state um, Australian state competition and they had invited New Zealand to be a part of it. we still attend this competition now and anyway we we arrived there and at the um, the coaches meeting and the managers meeting um, they turned to us and they said oh would the New Zealand contingency like to start the opening ceremony <laughs> with a haka and um, I said no we would not <laughs> we uh, we are here to compete we're not here to provide entertainment. Mm. Um, now, my role inside of high performance sport, and particularly with volleyball in New Zealand, was to ensure that those things were, were looked after. And it was, what, what actually happened in the end is that we didn't. And so when we did go to um, perform that haka, it was for the people who had organized that event. Mm. It was to say, thank you for hosting us. Um, then I think people got the point of, of what the haka means. We also performed it for our families that, that, that joined us. So these are, they, these are just some of the examples that weave into to this idea of the, the misinterpretation of some use of Indigenous, indigenous knowledge. Um, yeah. Can I jump in with something? I'm just thinking, Bevan, one thing you said really stood out to me, which was um, that sort of the 
the kaupapa that's been laid on you maybe is to use the media as an educative tool. And I'm just thinking about all of us on this panel and all of us are actually quite active public intellectuals. And, and I'm just thinking about, you know, that responsibility. And in terms of, I mean, all of us, I think Holly, I know you and neither have talked about Muslim women and, and exclusion. I've talked about, you know, exclusion in the rugby world cups and being, lambasted right left and center up and down the country um but in in a sense you know i i think in some ways we have more opportunity to do that in this part of the world so particularly in new zealand and australia i think there's something unique about the way that the media are actually interested in informed opinions you know that we don't necessarily see in other parts of the world at the moment but that we've got you know, we, we actually do have not just a right, but it's a responsibility under the New Zealand Education Act. One of the five responsibilities of universities is to be a critic and conscience of society. And so I thought it might be interesting to just maybe if, if everybody talks about how they think, you know, in terms of what opportunities we have in a region to get access to broader cultural discourses that maybe some of our colleagues in other countries don't have and what, what that brings with it. Whatever we can do, uh, I think, to, um, to, uh, to engage um, in conversation outside the academy uh, in a fruitful way uh, is really important and that uh, we do have um, opportunities. I mean, the, the conversation, which is everyone talks about, you know, these days, I've, and I've actually wrote a, uh, um, a piece on, on the conversation, like a, a, a semi-academic piece called The University is a Giant Newsroom, which is uh, the way it was um, conceived. I mean, that does come, originates from this region and uh, spread out. Uh, so conversation now goes, has offices in Indonesia, the USA, France, South Africa, um, UK, and others. Um, and uh, I think that is uh, a, an important uh, way of um, as of uh, it's of communicating. Uh, and this is the International Communication Association, so it's important for us to talk about it. We uh, we do put ourselves in some peril, as Tony has pointed out, that uh, uh, you know that you can uh, get all kinds of nasty things said and death threats and all that. Um, but I think that is a really important uh, aspect, public communication of what we we think is important in terms of citizenship broadly. I mean, I'm not, I think that's a really interesting idea and I hadn't really thought that maybe we have more um, opportunities to, to speak publicly and maybe uh, think about sport and talk about sport in kind of critical ways than some of our international um, colleagues perhaps. But I actually think maybe we've seen a shift over the last 10 years, say in New Zealand anyway, in terms of um, some of the media outlets, um, you know, um, our national, national radio, for example, um, some of the newspapers. Uh, I do think there's more of an um, openness to bring in critical uh, perspectives, but I wonder if that's just that the newspapers and the news are more open, or that we've actually over the last 10, 20 years had more and more of a critical mass of, of sport, critical sports scholars who are actually speaking out and standing up and, and taking that, like you said, that's our, one of our responsibilities. 
So maybe it's not necessarily the media who wants to hear more, but uh, academics, more of us in, in Australia too, I'd say, who are taking up these opportunities, whether it's the conversation, whether it's talking to news journalists, et cetera, and, and being bold enough to correct them when they get us wrong, using Twitter to speak out and share um, research and critical ideas. So I'm not sure which way it goes. I think it might be us banging on the door more than um, the media actually wanting to hear more from us. But I think the public has, over the last 10, 20 years, become more open to thinking about sport in more complex ways than rather than, you know, sports, you know, not political. It's, we shouldn't be talking about these things, but still those ideas run pretty strongly and part of the response and that knee-jerk response. And sometimes angry responses come from this idea that sport is, is sacred, but actually there's more of us pulling at its edges. What more can we do here? How can we make sport better? And I think um, maybe that's, that's part of the shift we're seeing. Sorry, just very quickly. Um, but one reason is our time has arrived because, because of the loss of, of journalists. Um, uh, we provide a lot of, um, lot of free content too. So there's that, that is that too. Sorry. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Can I, can I just make sure Nita gets to this conversation? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought maybe I'd bounce off Bevan's end of Bevan's talk, where you said, you know, you're talking about journalists, if they're not, if they don't, if they're not willing to educate themselves, they shouldn't be talking about that topic. And I thought there's a little bit of a parallel, Nita, maybe you saw it too, with our sports facilitators who are coaches or working within sporting regional trusts, etc., who they know they don't know about Islamic culture and how, how to do things, but they don't know how to ask or where to go. And so actually they were to us in the interviews kind of like, we need help here, but who's, who's gonna help us? Because we actually want to know how to do this better. Um, so I wonder if there's sort of an interesting parallel between, I guess the, the issue is what's the, what's the role, the potential in sport for cultural education and therefore cultural dialogue and whose responsibility is to bring these knowledges into dialogue. Um, I want to pass that over to maybe Nita to, to speak to. I mean, I think this is where, when you talk about bringing the voices in, is just actually having the voices represented from those communities. And again, I can't speak for all Muslim women, right? Even I'm an American Muslim. And so my experiences come, they're very different. I lived overseas too, but here it's different to speaking to the Muslims within New Zealand. Um, so it's really working with the communities within each region. So Waikato, what they were going through was different than what was happening up in Auckland. So I think really bringing the different cultures, different ethnicities to the table and having these conversations and not being afraid to reach out because they're there. The communities are there and they're doing these projects. But I don't know what the, where the fear is because they are, they are working with the communities. And there are leaders in the community. So there's definitely a disconnect of communication and how the information is being relayed, saying we want leaders. I don't know what's that. There's a disconnect going on between the sports organizers reaching out to the communities. Are, are they even listening? That's what my, I wonder. Are they really bringing them to the table? Or are they really, really listening? Is this an area neither where, um, where academics really have a role to play? Where, you know, where we do research that's of particular relevance and help, but you know, what you've been doing is really working with the people who are on the ground. Working, so. Yeah, it's very, it has to be collaborative too. And I think that's um, work, yeah, as I think you mentioned it earlier, um, 
a few minutes ago is just like working with everyone on the ground, who's on the ground, having these conversations um, with researchers, with sports facilitators, with people in leadership position. As we mentioned, like none of the top leaders really wanted to speak to us. Um, you know, we, we knocked on a lot of doors and it was just like, we forward it, we forward it. We don't do it, but they are really excited to talk about diversity and be inclusive, but they're not practicing it. And that's where the problem is. So and it's finding the doors that do open. So this, this project yeah. was in collaboration with um, the research lead at Sport New Zealand. So it is going to go feeding back through Sport New Zealand and also a partner at Sport Waikato. So that for us is is very strategic. We want the research to have an impact. We want it to, to come from the community, but then also trickle back down. So I guess as academics, how do we do, do work that actually has, has that impact? And I guess it, I think for us, Nita, it takes a lot of patience and persistence and blood, sweat and tears, actually. And maybe our sporting training helps us for that because you've got to keep coming back. Because I think you have to visit, for me, it was even within, I've been in New Zealand now four years and I don't know everybody, but I to actually be there, physically be there in spaces. And that's how it, the doors opened up for me was meeting with them. And then once they met me, they're like, oh, you're doing it. It's not someone that's not from the Muslim community. And that kind of just opened up all these doors. And it was just every other day I was going somewhere else. It was amazing. At the same time, it was exhausting because I was like, I want to capture all these voices. We also have a budget. <laughs> so it was there's a lot of people that wanted to speak to us and it went outside the Muslim community too, because they're like a lot of the ethnic women that saw me having this conversation with the Muslim community. They're like, what about us? What about our voices? And these are not Muslim women. These are other ethnicities and other cultures and they want to be heard too. So there is a need and it's definitely here in New Zealand and it's just hopefully people tap into it and actually listen to the voices. Yes, I was just going to, um, to add to that. And thank you, Holly. Yeah, it is a really nice, a really nice connect. And, and Tony will, and, and yourself, Holly, because you work in this, in this space too, that this is all about trying to identify who are our allies and, and that, in fact, the allied voice is probably the, the better voice than my voice, for instance. You don't want a Māori always coming in and going, this is what you need to do. Sometimes the voice can come from an ally and that ally voice has a, a nicer way of, of being able to once again negotiate and navigate those those tensions that might exist. Um, it's a really um, awesome project that, that you've got going here because as much as I think about um, inclusivity and diversity, I do come at it from a bicultural rhetoric and, and lens and yet I know there's potentiality that if I go back to um, to the ideas and the principles of Tetiriti or Waitangi, those, those are the convergences between us and Māori and, and, and other cultures because the preamble of the treaty, Tetiriti or Waitangi, says do no harm. Do no harm to anybody, you know. So I kind of like the idea that um, the treaty, when we're here in Aotearoa, if we could unpack that a little bit more and what does it mean to do no harm, um, then it's about understanding and, as you say, um, co-designing all those all those types of things. Um, the 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 toughest part, if I can go back to the um, being out in the media media space, I'm I'm terrible at it. I shy away from it. If I'm asked to respond to something, I'll say, Oh, Farah Farah Palmer, Dr. Farah Palmer is available. You might want to talk to her instead. 
And it comes from this position of um, um, once again being told to, you know, what is my what is my lane? But I have come around to this idea of what you were talking about, David and Brett, um, and and all of you actually. What is our role and what is our responsibility as academic citizens? You know, and it took me a while to to come to that. You know, I no longer shy away from from media, but I still hesitate um, because I just don't know how they're going to edit the damn thing <laughs> when it goes, and what they take and 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 piece it together. And I know that this is shared amongst the Maori community in terms of academia. Um, there's a, a wonderful po, um, a person held in massive regard in in, in Pohimara. Um, Himara at Waikato University, you you don't hear him much in the media, but when he does, you listen. <laughs> um, and that was, um, it, I suppose, it was um, from that kind of teaching, hearing and seeing that example, that um, when the moment arrives, I won't shy away from. But I'm, it's just one of those things of waiting for, you know, those tupuna, those po, those people that you lean on. Um, all the time um, to just go, oh, that's who, that's who you should probably go and see. But yeah, that's a, another thing that I'm just internalising at the moment. That's why I really appreciated the invitation, actually, was to learn more around, around um, yeah, the, the purpose of media. But can, I, can I ask a question of everybody to speak to if they want to? Because it's something that really, um, you at the end brought us back to this context, this context of the world and COVID, times of COVID. And it made prompted me to think about each paper that's been presented today and to, to each of the presenters to what does this new context going forward mean for the topic of their of their research? Are things going to stay the same or are things going to be different? And I know there's a lot of call and a lot, a lot of calls going on around um, the world right now. Um, to build sport back differently, to, to rethink the foundations upon which sport has been built upon. And yeah, I know it's crystal ball gazing, but I do, I just like to put that out there in terms of, do you think um, moving through beyond outside the other end, hopefully of, of COVID, what does this mean for our, the topics that you've been talking about today? I'm actually on Radio National tomorrow talking about this. Um, oh, good. Yeah, I'm on sporty. Um, Very good. Very good. Yeah. And look, I, I mean, from the perspective of the sort of work that I work on and with David as well, um, I think it's pretty clear things have changed and they've changed permanently. Um, the issue there is... Um, I think we're going to watch an even stronger dialectic. I, part, of, part of it is around what's missing at the moment in a lot of people's lives. And this speaks to my own ambivalence about sport generally, um, either by virtue of playing it and frankly getting injured a lot or watching elite sport and enjoying it, even though I understand the inequalities and inequities and injustices produced by those systems. Um, is that emphasis on social ritual, you know, affective experiences, symbols and, and the importance of the, you know, the, the symbols of inclusion and exclusion, of course. And that I think a lot of people are understanding the role, those roles in the way that sport brings families and, and communities together and it also, it also excludes others. So there is something quite important being missed in people's lives. While at the same time dealing with the fact that I also am noticing 
I would regard as extremely early and uncertain evidence of further pushes for privatisation, financialization, and new dominant players, particularly coming out of the tech sector, um, that do not have community at stake. That do not, and you know, if, I, if I'm to talk about what I do publicly, and like many of you, and I've certainly got a, I've got a lovely um, sort of email and indeed physical folder of hate mail. Um, it is around constantly sort of emphasising, you know, in trying to simplify what we do and make it consumable by people who aren't necessarily coming in with some of the, the literatures and the, and the concepts we work with. It's always around emphasising participation, access, openness and community as opposed to, of course, elite systems, um, privilege, power. <laughs> you know, it goes back to very old questions of social justice. Um, but I do think at the moment, at least post-COVID, is that that urge for sporting experience, that urge for content is also a gateway for people that are gonna use it to harvest, uh, hoover up data and control content and concentrate market power. Um, and I, and I realise I often come up with pretty depressing conclusions and I'm trying to stop it. Um, but uh, yeah, that's sort of where I'm sitting at the moment, that we are seeing a, a flourishing of ways of talking about sport in terms of community and connection, but that equally provides a gateway for those who can afford to keep revenues flowing for professional sport leagues that are used to doing very well. Thank you very much. I'd have to agree with you, Brett, depressingly. Um, I don't know if any of you have read Fiona McLaughlin's article, uh, research article called It's Boom Time Again, where yeah. she mapped the, you know, these, the rise of women's sport at four or five different points in our, in our history, where everyone's like, women's sport is great, it's going fantastically, everything's wonderful, um, but that never translated over into regular, consistent, game-related coverage and women's sport disappeared again. And there's a part of me that's really afraid that we're coming, because of COVID-19, we may be coming to the end of this current boom time. And I think that, that the fears I have for women's, women's rugby in the context of my study is very similar to the fears I have for Māori rugby, which is that... Um, I fear there's going to be a narrow back to the core. You know, if there's, if money's tight, we're going to go back to the core and the core is always elite male professional team sports or, you know, so that the, the growth and the, the pushing of the boundaries around the edges that we've seen and that people have embraced tremendously um, there's a real risk unless there's a lot of discussion and pushback against it is that that, that will it'll just compress back to the center again um, this topic came absolutely to the fore yesterday when the New Zealand we had the hearing of epidemic response committee and uh, they, it was it was focused on sport and the first speaker was the CEO of netball New Zealand Jenny Wiley and she talked about identified um, this important moment, like to build sport back differently. And she said that uh, women's sports had hundreds of millions of dollars of underinvestment over the last decades. And she was really identifying the challenges for netball going forward, netball at the grassroots and the community level, and then right up to the elite at the elite uh, competition series. And then followed by, um, by Jenny, uh, 
the rugby rugby league CEO of rugby league um, he came in talking about how we're really comfortable <laughs> our warriors are back in Australia they're in this safe bubble um, we're doing well we're privately owned we've got good sponsors we're self-funded everything's looking great and then one of the, um, the commentators or um, the members of the committee uh, asked oh, what about, what about women's rugby league? What about at the grassroots level? And he kind of, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was such an afterthought. But I thought it was a brilliant sort of um, juxtaposition between women's sport and this recognition of the, the serious need for support investment going forward after so many years of, of underinvestment. And in men's sport, who have had a lot of investment charging forward and everything's okay, we're fine here. So that was just, for me, it's quite a striking moment of exactly what, what you were talking about, both uh, Brett and Tony. Okay, just um, yeah. say my little bit. Uh, I, uh, I mean, in, in, in broader sense, uh, I was thinking uh, there have been three kind of major crises in this millennium. Um, 11.9, as I prefer to call it, or 9.11, as some do. Um, the global financial crisis, and now this. Um, every time there is a statement that things are going to be different, either better or worse, but um, in the case of the global financial crisis, things were, remember, things were going to be different. There was an Occupy Wall Street and, uh, um, and so on. And, um, you know, there was some... Wall Street Banker was recently uh, quoted as describing the global financial crisis as a blip. And, um, and within a few years, you know, uh, people were getting the same kind of bonuses that they were getting before the global financial crisis. My, so without wanting to be too pessimistic, my feeling is that we have to remember what it was like. Now, it's easy, once things move on, people kind of forget. And I think we have to remember um, what, what it's been like. In broad structural terms, though, um, what has happened is that all, a, a trend that was already occurring, um, and here I'm talking specifically about media and the media sport cultural complex, what is it, um, has been happening is a plateauing of um, broadcast television contributions to sport, underwriting of sport. That was already happening. This has been greatly exacerbated by um, COVID-19. Um, so the major paymaster of big sport um, is itself in trouble and is reducing its contribution. So this is going to ripple across, as I think we've all identified, the, uh, the whole uh, of, of the institution of sport and the, the battle which you, um, Holly and Tony very well identified, I think, is um, the battle is over. If the pie is diminishing, uh, as I think it, it will certainly will do for quite a while, um, uh, who, who is going to be regarded as dispensable or disposable? And, it, and so it's a power, a question of power and will. And um, so people like us and, uh, and our allies, as Bevan would put it, uh, really have to um, be in there fighting that corner because otherwise um, the women's sport and um, 
sport for people with disabilities, et cetera, et cetera, will be, um, will be marginalized. I'm just reading the last paragraph of our pitch for this panel. The objective of this panel uh, is to de demonstrate the role of sport in the construction of cultural citizenship, national symbolism, and cultural participation in Oceania, or whatever region we want to call it, and the cultural power and material differences that are perpetuated by these globally and transnationally inflected processes. At the same time, it will invite dialogue with local and visiting sport communicating scholars in advancing interdisciplinary knowledge of the differences and convergences evident in a range of regional contexts. Now, um, I think, I mean, I, I know I'm a part of it, but I think that, uh, that a whole series of very rich issues have been raised, rich and difficult issues have been raised here and relevant ones. And, um, and I do hope that people who see this, um, uh, this video uh, will feel free to um, to engage with us. I mean, I'll um, I'll be switching on when it goes to air. I'll be switching on every now and again, and uh, be hoping to speak to the people who couldn't, as we'd hoped, attend uh, with us uh, from around the world, and to make connections with hopefully with what we said, to dispute it, to um, to to have a, a a good open dialogue. So um, so thank you. For, for me, from the participants, for Brett for having the idea, and an invitation to people watching to uh, to engage with us.